This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. There are claims for water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? We are now on episode 46. I'm Frederick and this is recorded in a hotel room in Manchester, England. The QED conference arranged by the Merseyside Skeptics have just come to an end. It has been an excellent conference filled with fantastic talks and a lot of exciting people. Some presentations have of course triggered some thought and given a couple of things to reflect on. Hence in this episode it is time to reflect and talk about some more serious things that needs to be addressed well sooner rather than later so it will not be our usual dive into pseudoscience even it it will kind of be there it will not also be just a repetition of the weekend or the talks uh, that i heard i don't think that would be too (laughs) too interesting to listen to so First, we will start to talk about uh, threats and harassment toward the skeptic and archaeological communities. And this part is, well, in part based on Claire Klingenberg's talk during Skeptic Camp titled The Safety of Skeptical Activism. Claire's talk, and well, I also did a presentation during Skeptic Camp, if you want to read, uh, is still available on Skeptics in the Pubs Twitch, where you can see it a couple of days more. I think you have four or five days still, when this air at least. <laughs> um, but if you miss that don't worry they will release most of the talk later too but after this important talk we will move on to something closer to what we usually do and we're going to base a segment on a video i saw on tiktok while waiting for my plan to manchester and in this video there seems to be some sort of ceremony and the video talk about uh, the people having these weird ceramic helmets And in the video, these people are referred to as mudmen. And I thought there was something else going on here than the video was representing and talking about. And I was kind of correct. So in the other half of the episode, we will look into the creation of the mudmen mythology and whether or not a legend can be copyrighted. Now that we've finished with our preparation, let's dig into the episode. So, as a warm-up for QED, the organization Skeptics in the Pub hosted an event called Skepticamp, and they do this every year that they hold QED at least. And during this event, several speakers did uh, short lightning talks on various subjects. And we have everything from the history of electricity to prison escapes. If you have time and want to see it, again, still available at 
on Twitch for a few more days uh, and it will be released on YouTube later. And it was one talk that maybe a bit ironically touched on a topic that again was taking place toward our community. Claire Klingenberg is, among other things, the European Council of Skeptical Organizations president. Claire's talk on safety within skepticism happened to more or less coincide with yet another attack from the pseudoscience movement towards archaeologists and skeptics. And these new sets of harassment started on the 22nd of September when Jimmy Corsetti tweeted ex or whatever you should call it now, a short message asking why were Hitler and the Nazis so obsessed with lost ancient history? And the tweet was accompanied by a couple of swastika-like depictions found in what I believe is the Acropolis in Athens. Suppose you wonder why this is a problematic question. In that case, I highly recommend returning to episode 19 called Aliens in the Third Reich, where I go into more details on the connection between neo-Nazis and these pseudoscientific claims. Corsetti has, after this, also gone on tweeting, Were you aware that uh, so many ancient Egyptian mummies were blonde-haired gingers? Both statements, while on the surface seem harmless, carry a legacy of white supremacy ideas and scientific racism that was common in the early 1900s. And we can see connections to Jan Udo Hauli or Jan van Helsing and to Norbert Jürgen Rathofer and Ralph Ettel, all three neo-Nazis and writers of alternative history that influenced several, well, mainstream pseudoscientifics. But we also see legacy of our friend Posnansky, Ignatius Donnelly, and all the other rather racist theorists trying to take credit away from people of color then. And among those who were maybe the most vocal about calling out Jimmy was uh, Dr. Flint Dibble, a British archaeologist who has gathered quite a large following on Twitter specifically, and one who... um, has maybe been the one who most want to debate Graham Hancock on Joe Rogan. I will get off the Twitter drama shortly, bear, bear with me here. Dr. Dribble wrote, quote, Wow, pseudo-archaeology YouTuber Jimmy Corsetti is fully embracing the dark side and openly spouting Nazi shit. Disgusting. Nothing is inherently wrong, while maybe a more extended explanation on why it is problematic would have been great. Well, it's hard to really do in a tweet. I've spent thousands and thousands on work trying to convey this connection for a reason. But uh, this was, well, hurtful to Corsetti. And what do people do when they get hurt? Well, they retaliate, especially in this new media landscape. So Jimmy continued the discussion by putting out the contact info to Dibble's university, hoping that the people would flood the university with complaints. It is not the first time the pseudoscientific crowd has um, instigated their followers to harass or attack people or organization working against them. Jimmy Corsetti has in the past utilized sites like RateMyProfessor.com when he was annoyed with Dr. Bill Farley's criticism of Graham Hancock. Bill, who is a friend of the show and 
also a repeating guest, talk a little bit more about this in episode 31. And he, we go into details of his experience and what happened with the fallout of all of this. And Graham Hancock is also a bit guilty of this behavior. After his series aired, he tried to get more attention by doxing the person working at Ohio History Connection who denied his crew filming permit uh, at the Serpent Mound site in Ohio. We only saw their response email, but uh, his crew's contact details were blacked out while the representative of Ohio history was not. We did not also see the original request from ITN Productions. I reached out to the production company and asked if I could see the initial uh, request, but they have not gotten back to me. But Graham Hancock have left out from his narrative that the request included a multi-day filming permit. And for a larger filming crew, it can be quite a hassle for a site. So the Ohio History Connection denied the filming permit due to, well, not being able to accommodate this and, well, in part due to Hancock's problematic statements in the past and his, uh, well, wrongful ideas about history. Something worth remembering here is that Hancock has never been denied entry to the Serpent Mound. He was denied filming. There is a difference there, I would say. And what we have discussed now is relatively tame in comparison to other things that are going on. However, these things add into a greater escalation of threats, harassments and violence we see today, especially in this new media landscape. And just a few months ago on Mykonos, uh, archaeologists received threatening text just shortly after uh, another archaeologist were beaten unconscious in the street. And this seems to not have been connected to pseudo-archaeology, but still show that archaeologists do face a danger in this world, especially when we uh, deal with um, with, uh, granting building permits and such. And also that vilify a people that uh, the alternative history crowd going to do makes violence and threats easier. And we also have many reports of surveying archaeologists in America who is uh, chased off uh, the land with loaded weapons from uh, landowners. And if archaeologists risk this in their day-to-day work, imagine what a group of radicalized online people would be capable of doing. And, well, we have seen examples of this somewhat already. Back in 2006, 21 historians criticized Osmanagi's Bosnian pyramids, and the nationalist Bosniak group uh, quickly retaliated by harassing the, well, so-called corrupt archaeologists by email, phone, and even in person. One of the more vocal critics and the curator of the National Museum, Silika Kujunsits Vejatsits, reported receiving many threats on phone, email and was even painted out as the enemy of Bosnia. Kujundjus Vejatsits uh, reported one instance that she was actually forced off one of the trams by a nationalist that spotted her entering the public uh, transportation system. And we see the same pattern around Gunung Padang. If you remember a site we discussed earlier, especially around Graham Hancock's um, Netflix shows, archaeologists and other scholars who criticized Dr. Hillman's project were silenced. It, uh, of course, did not help that the most 
prominent financier of the project was, well, the government. And this led to a culture of silence that only benefits the pseudoscience crowd. And this is kind of the goal that they are trying to achieve. Well, but what should we do then if you who um, listen, you might be active online, you might even face threats or harassment yourself due to this. What should we do? And um, again, to go back to Claire Klingenberg's speech, I think she really put this in a very nice and concrete step-by-step manner. So let's listen in to what she has to say about this. The practicalities of what happens when you get a death threat. Get a buddy, right? Get a friend. Get someone you trust to go and, or even a threat of bodily harm, to report it to the police. Because this process is really difficult. You have to explain what it is that you do. Which, you know, as skeptics, that's never going to be easy to start off with. The next thing is to explain why you've become a victim of a threat and to make sure that it's being taken seriously. And some threats are more imminent, some are just kind of random. We know we have many personalities within our community that had to move addresses because of how how badly they were addressed. We know, for example, Edward Ernst had to have his mail checked by the police because there were anthrax threat, threats to him and everything. And we can't forget that men, women and well, non-binary don't face the same type of harassment or at the same levels. Men tend to have it a little bit easier compared to many women and non-binary people. As female activists, we do face a, a different type of threats online and it's usually... Well, just already name calling is different because they're much, it's much more focused on how we look. And then, of course, the threats are of sexual violence, which is something our male counterparts don't really face as much. So that's another element to add into that. In a 2017 survey, 21% of women between 19 and 29 reported being sexually harassed. 53% in the same group have received illicit sexual pictures. I'm not sure why, why they make a distinction here. I would say that they are more or less the same, but at least 53% get, well, basically dick pics. But anyway, a UNESCO survey among female journalists reports that 70% of this group have experienced online violence. 20% say that this have led to real-world altercation where they have been approached by the people threatening them online. And I think it's worth pointing out here that there seems to be a sort of crossover between the alternative history crowd and, well, the manosphere. And the manosphere often consists of young, conservative and predominantly white men who is getting, well, radicalized online and often they seek out people who promote the idea of the existence of this white, uh, of there being this white culture bearer race as we see Graham Hancock and other promote. But they have a lot more talking points than just the pseudo-scientific points. They're also trying to use uh, history, biology, archaeology to promote these uh, manosphere ideas in topics such as Gender, for example. We see this in a discussion regarding skeletons and gender and if we should sex them or not and how we should approach this idea about gender within mortuary archaeology. The right or the alt-right manosphere often touts that archaeologists and osteologists cannot provide 
the identified gender of a person. We can only look at what they typically call the biological gender, while we know that this is not really a correct um, view of the current scientific idea about gender, but they usually want to see gender as only binary, a view that's not really representative within the modern science on sex and gender. It's a kind of Victorian model that they use as a base for gender, which leads science to be held back. Something Lucy Koch show in her book uh, Bitch, a revolutionary guide to sex evolution and female animals. And this idea of woke archaeologists is then reported in conservative media and pseudoscientific sources like ancient origins, which through the line lead to uh, these pseudo-archaeological histories getting promoted in a sense or sold into the manosphere crowd with this uh, woke wokeness anti-wokeness ideas being the driven driving factor behind it the alt-right has a highly and well-coordinated online presence these ideologies are also great in using people or the interests of people for example conspiratorial idea alternative science to further the alt-right agenda. But as Debbie Ging, professor of digital media and gender, points out, social media platforms are currently radicalizing white men through their algorithms. If you show that you're a male, especially white, and you go online looking at the topics that's usually associated with male behavior, gym, football, sports, you will quickly be radicalized into this Joe Rogan alternative wokeness, uh, anti-feminist speakers rather quickly. And the social media platform also have a vested interest in promoting these ideas and quote, hate online triggers interaction and traffic which translates into economic revenue for platforms something that's become increasingly clear with for example twitter slash x new revenue sharing models and all of these are things that i've noted while reaching out to potential guests for this show people who are not white male often decline and it's very common that they have for reason that they fear harassment or fear to get more harassment. This is corroborated in an article from Science where they interviewed Stephanie Mulder, Sarah Heed and other person within this sphere and all these women reporting being harassed and Stephanie Mulder as an example described how she gets sent uh, knife emojis to her and I will let Claire again in to see what to do after receiving threats or harassment. Do you share this on social media, what you've been going through? There's a, if you feel strong enough, then please do, because these people love to live in the darkness. And once you bring them out to the light, they stop being so brave. Unless you get a direct command from the police not to do so, please do share these kinds of experiences and these kinds of threats on social media and share it if, if, if you can with journalists to show, number one, you have to show that being a science communicator, science popularizer, a skeptic, that it does come with a reaction, that people are afraid of facts sometimes so much that it does 
get to this point. And the more you share your story, the safer you make people around you because then their, their stories are taken more seriously when you go out and speak about yours. Definitely seek out a mental health professional. And I wish I had a solution to this issue, but we can support each other. And if you happen to be a public skeptic or a traveler, please report threats that you receive. While it might be cumbersome, it might help someone else because you took the time and made the police understand what you're going through and why. And we can help by discussing these issues and bringing them out into the light. These people love to operate in the shadows and they will lose some power if their methods come out into the light. But the most crucial part is to make sure that you're safe. If you don't feel safe, step back and return to it when you feel ready to do it again. But what should we do next then? Well, we need to start talking about these subjects and, as I mentioned, bring them forward. And the more we do, the more support we can be towards each other. And by talking, we can figure out way how to combat this as a unified group. And it's a lot trickier to bring down a unified group than individual people who feel a bit alone in all of this. And on that segue, we will have a quick break. And when we get back, we will talk about the Asaro Mudmen. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show. For as little as $2.50 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for, you will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine! the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you will gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support to sign up. Together we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. So, let's leave this subject and go on to something a bit closer to what we usually do. So this all started with a short film I watched while lazily scrolling, waiting for the other passengers to fight their way onto the airplane. And this film claimed to show a trial from Papua New Guinea who wears a strange looking mask while being smeared in mud and wearing loincloth. The mask look rather evil and seemed to be made of... It's basically a ceramic bowl with a demon-like face carved into it. And the story that accompanied the video went something like this. 
During one of the many tribal fights, the inhabitants of Asaro came off worst. The survivors saved themselves on the muddy banks of the river, where they hid until nightfall. When they, completely covered with light mud, tried to sneak away quietly, they were observed by the enemy, who thought they were avenging ghosts of the killed. The enemy panicked and fled. The Asaro, surprised by the effect of their unintentional makeup, developed this as a war strategy, a kind of psychological warfare, and created mud masks. The video also states that this tribe is almost unknown and has a baffled anthropologist who really can't explain them. So with all of this, my skeptic senses started to tingle and led me down a rabbit hole on how a modern myth is birth from convenience and a bit of luck. It also created a legal question, can a tradition be copyrighted? To start, the tribe, if they are now unknown, is doing unknown, well, entirely wrong because these uh, Asaro people have been featured in commercials for Toyota, Orange Soda, Pepsi and even airlines and they have been portrayed on album covers such as Pink Floyd's Obscured by Clouds and the very famous uh, record House Techno 2. The tribe from Papua New Guinea has of course been known before all of this and they have never really been unknown in that sense but the legend about the mask, about uh, all of this that we just heard didn't really exist in western sources until 1970s and there it start to expand rather quickly writers are expanding on the myth and lore and some come to connect the masks with a demon that helped the tribe giving them so-called eyes to kills other writers claim that they were wore these masks and danced to eliminate the demons instead. And in a relatively poor BBC article, it's claimed that the mask originated from a wedding attendee who could not find suitable clothes, so he created a mask for some reason and everybody thought he was a ghost and fled. So all the classical colonial ideas can be found in the traditions origin, which should make you pause a little bit for skeptical because it really do play into the European idea of uh, in the past called the primitive savage and all of that and this should always make you pause and think about what you're hearing and reading but is it possible to find or know the origin of the tradition Ton Otto and Robert J. Verloop, two anthropologists, did in 1996 go back to find the true source of this practice. And they did find something rather interesting while doing so, not maybe as interesting as what we hear in this little myth and legends but still very interesting. So they went to the small village of uh, Komuniv located in the Asaro Valley and the closest larger city to this is called Goroka. There they met the big man of the Asaro Mudman Rupio Okoroho. Rupio was kind enough to tell them the real 
story behind the tradition. It all started at the end of the 1800s when Ropio Okrojo's grandfather Bukiro Pote decided to leave the village of uh, Cabiofa to live in the Vatabong area for for some time. And during his time in the Vatabong area, Bukiro learned some new costumes from his newly found neighbors. One happened to be the practice uh, the people there called Bakime. You see, when you're very upset with your neighbor or rival village, you might want to extract some sort of good old street justice. But while doing so, you don't really want to be recognized, so you try to conceal your identity. And in a time where Nixon or Pig Mask, not sure why I made a distinction there, were pretty rare, the people in Watabung covered their identity with the help of a white sap from the Menhia tree. And Bukirio Pote returned to his village with these new practices. Bukiro, when returning, changed the practice name to Girituvai. And instead of using tree sap, he constructed masks out of a bamboo frame, a sack, and smeared mud on top of this little construction that he had created. One could only speculate about these changes. Maybe it was due to the tree not being widely available in the area, or Bukiro felt that this method was better concealment of one's identity. And it was not only these people who used the colors to change their appearance. Other people in the highlands, for example, used car crawl to paint their bodies to look more fierce during combat. And this practice is connected to the belief that the ancestral spirit accompanied the warrior into battle and a need to conceal your identity from the opposing warriors. So we have a connection with some of the modern retelling. Remember this as we go forward. And smearing mud on you is an act associated with grief and mourning within the Highland people. But other tribes use mud to honor fallen fighters when they return to battle. And white mud especially has been associated with spirits within the Highland. So we find a lot of bits and pieces that seem to have been woven into the modern western retelling about the story. But the ceramic mask we see today has not yet been invented in our story. Remember the Girituwai mask were just simple frames with a sack and some mud on top of it. But this would change in 1957 when Rupio Okorojo was invited to bring his people to dance in the Eastern Highland Agriculture Show. And during the event there would be a so-called sing-sing competition. Sing-sing is a form of dance performance and the Asaro people were asked to compete in this segment of the show. And while the Asaro do have a very fine dance pedigree, Rupio Okorojo suggested that they should resurrect his grandfather's ideas of Girituvai. Some changes were made and the mask got a bit more elaborate and closer to what we see today. When the group entered the fairgrounds, they performed quite the spectacle and won the competition. During the event, more, more of the Mudman legends started to grow. Already, another tribe called the Ifiyufa 
provide a Sarovida song to accompany their dance and even a name for the figure, Holosa, a word that translates to ghost or spirit. So the tradition is in reality very new and between 1957 and 1964 the Holosa dance was only performed once a year and that was at the Eastern Highland Agriculture Show. But after 1964 the Asaro tribe also started to put on a show in the Communiv village Rupio Okoroho acted as a sort of middleman between the village and tour organizers, arranging that way Mudman sighting tour. To sell the tours, the story about the Asara Mudman expanded and expanded and grew yet again. And we see a weave of stories based on tribal warfare, supernatural spirit and ancestral belief being added. And they also start to adore themselves with the clay and the mud. All the things that fit well into the Western idea again about this primitive savage. And then the tour guys continue to expand on the concept and quoting each other without acknowledging. And in the end we have the story that kinda is presented to Day. So what started as an invitation to a dance competition has turned into a quite lucrative tourist attraction that of course generate a little bit of competition and jealousy while, while we know that many tribal societies have an idea of ownership regarding non-material or intellectual good. And these include weaving pattern, uh, designs, rituals, concept of spirits and all this and often Different tribes will leave these concepts and immaterial rights alone. But in a world where tourism has become quite a large business and a way to make a good income, some of these rituals has uh, become a bit of a commodity, more or less. This has led to Rupio Okroho, to, who claimed to have the copyright to the practice, appearing in court to defend this claim of the copyright. And we see this clearly in the BBC article I mentioned previously. And the journalists talked with three Mudman performers at the Sydney's Australian Museum back in 2016. And one of the performers named Corey said, quote, The government does not recognize or protect our ownership rights and everyone in the Highlands now claiming to be a Mudman. But it's our story and others have copied it from us. It's a big worry for us because we don't have any copyright protection. Inrupio Okoroho has been in court several times during the 1980s and successfully actually argued that he has a right to the origin of the ritual. Even the Watabong people claim to own the source due to the inspiration from Bakime, but it was established that the Girutuwai is his own right. And this has led to, um, well, infighting even between Rupio and other others within the village. So a man named Atario, for example, claims to be the one who changed the mask from a banana root mask to clay mask. And it seems to have split the village into different camps where the younger inhabitants seem to prefer Atario's narrative over Rupio's. So while the story is new, it does offer us a chance to see how a ritual and myth can form. With his first appearing in 1957, we can follow how it changed and how the performance has turned it into something much older and grounded, trying to root it into a much deeper history in their culture. While 
Most of the land seems to be fueled by tourist money. It does not invalidate the ritual and how it was formed and how it is experienced by the modern practitioners of the ritual. And it's a fascinating journey into the birth of a practice, even if the original story does not fit well into our Western idea on how tribal culture is formed. We can learn quite a lot from this case study, which I find much more fascinating than the spooky origin story of it. On that note, we will close out for this time. Until we see each other next time, please spread the word by leaving a positive review on platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or among your fellow trench dwellers. For more information about me and my podcast, check out diggingupancientaliens.com. you also find me on most social media sites, and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or want to write that email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. You also find an extensive list on sources and resources and, well, reading recommendations for those eager to expand their knowledge on the subject matter on the episode page. And this show is on the Archaeological Podcast Network that offers a lot of other great content. If you want more archaeology, I strongly recommend you to visit their website and sign up as a member. This gives you access to a member portal, a Slack channel, or a bunch of Slack channels, had free shows and bonus content from all the shows within the network. So it's a lot of value for your hard-earned money. Sandra Martelor created the intro music and our outro is by the band called Tralskruv, who sings their song Foliehat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time then, keep showing that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. <laughs>